Hello and welcome to the Poet Prophetic Podcast. Here is the next instalment of the Gourmet Gospel, starting with section 6. Enjoy! Section 6. An Otherworldly Freedom Quote, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 2 Corinthians 3.17 Let us now revisit Shakespeare's All the World's a Stage. Upon that stage, each of us plays a character who thinks that this little world between entrance and exit is all there is, who doesn't realise there's a whole other reality off-world, the reality of the immortal being playing the mortal character. This worldly character perceives only what is happening on the stage, armed only with thoughts and feelings, and these thoughts and feelings may be rooted in beliefs distorted by trauma or the stories told by others equally blind to reality. But of course, outside the box, or even globe, of any theatre, is a realm untouched by its theatrical parameters of time and space, beginning, middle and end, birth and death, friend and foe. When we realise we are merely actors or players clothed in mortal skin to play a role, then we can begin to see past all the fears of this world and to realise that they are not real. What, then, shall cause the walls of our little theatres to fall away, that we may glimpse the eternal, the infinite, and the divine? We call it imagination, and its symbols and metaphors, gifts from the other world, may guide us in this one. Imagination and Intuition The great Argentinian poet Borges imagines how, shortly before or after his death, Shakespeare found himself in the presence of God, and God told him, I dreamed the world the way you dreamt your plays, dear Shakespeare. And author Patrick Harper, paraphrasing the German mystic Jakob Burma, 1575-1624, argues God imagines the universe into existence. Imagination, then, is the supreme creative force of the universe. I love the phrase, to dream up. It expresses something alchemical, turning imagined things into manifested things, in much the same way as the Word of God became flesh in Jesus Christ. It also describes, quite literally, John Milton's process as he used scenes from his dreams in creating perhaps the greatest masterpiece of the English language, Paradise Lost, and I say this as a man who loves, lives and breathes Shakespeare. Imagination is our portal between this world and the other world. Through it, we may bring to pass on earth things foreseen in heaven. It is the ladder on which angels descend and we ascend, and, in the words of Harper, the realm which, lying between heaven and earth, participates in both, a realm of transition and transformation, where spirits are transmuted into bodies and bodies into spirits. It answers the question put by W. H. Auden in his poetry. 
How could the eternal do a temporal act, the infinite become a finite fact? By an act of imagination. If, as the Bible says, wisdom cries aloud in the streets, and we infer, therefore, that humanity is routinely deaf, then imagination is our tuning fork to hear its message again. And that message will likely come in imagination's primary language, that of metaphor and symbol, where the finite and infinite meet. Metaphor and symbol are also, of course, the currency of dreams, and dreams remind us that we have subconscious understandings as well as conscious ones, our spirit being the candle of the Lord, joined with his spirit and housed within the soul as marrow in the bones, stirs within us, calling deep to deep. Therein lies the infinite resource of intuition, which, as Oswald Chambers puts it, dwarfs conscious understanding. An island may be easily explored, yet how amazed we are when we realise that it is the top of a mountain, whose greater part is hidden under the waves of the sea and goes sheer down to deeper depths than we can fathom. The little island represents our conscious personality. The part of ourselves of which we are conscious is a very tiny part. There is a greater part underneath about which we know nothing. Consequently, there are upheavals from beneath that we cannot account for. The divine gifts of imagination and intuition free us from slavery to thought and feeling, which are our common currency of human interaction. As Sophocles points out, The maze of the mind cannot be untangled by the mind, but instinct cuts through the maze. Plato understood something similar in distinguishing between the knowledge of logic, scientia, and the knowledge of illumination, serpentia. The latter, according to Stanley Eugene Fish, reveals itself only to the inner eye of the aspiring soul. Nor is engagement with symbol and metaphor the monopoly of prophets. In 2012, I took part in a course in the UK entitled Call to Greatness, conducted by an Australian teacher named Darren Eden. Through his training, I learned a series of exercises that peer through the veil of limiting perceptions and reawaken a person's connection with what lies beyond them. The exercises take a variety of forms, but generally they involve transcending thought and feeling and a choice to return to innocence, to a state of not knowing, untouched by the polarising notions of good and evil. The practitioner may then receive a symbol on which imagination plays. Freedom in Thought Quotes Got a lot of sinful ideas, but they seem kind of sensible. John Steinbeck, The Grapes of Wrath The very play of mind, I think, is birth control today. C.S. Lewis to Roy Campbell as noted in the introduction, the Gordian knot of mythology was wound with such unfathomable complexity that no one, however wise or learned, however dexterous, had been able to untie it. But Alexander the Great put the knot's torment to rest by slicing through it with his sword. 
It is a useful image when it comes to our thought life, because imagination can be likened to that sword releasing us from the tangle of our thoughts. When we see God, thought will be irrelevant. Even prophecy and knowledge shall cease, because there will no longer be anything to figure out. Here are some lines of verse I have written exploring this idea. But when we see the vision face to face, and barriers of perception are unsealed, knowledge irrelevant, immersed in grace, then prophecy shall cease, for all's revealed. No need for it, when nothing is concealed. Who knows what wonders we have yet to see in the beyond dimensionality? Therefore, assigning thought to its little theatrical box, it should not be offended that we regard it as the mechanism of a lower order, much less that we deny it the right, status or scope to condemn us. The key principle to bear in mind as we explore thought is that the fruit of the Spirit is peace and joy. Any thought that produces a different type of fruit, be it fear, torment, guilt or shame, is not from God, and crucially, nor is it from you. As a slave to righteousness with the mind of Christ, your mind a fount of life and peace, and set on what the Spirit desires. The expression of spiritual truths in spiritual words is as natural to you as breathing. Meanwhile, dead to sin, you are dead to sinful thought, incapable of it. To put it another way, as far as sin is concerned, you are brain-dead. So condemning thoughts broadcasting on other frequencies have nothing to do with you. The Awful Orphans Now, speaking of ungodly broadcast, it is time to turn our attention to its source, the Prince of the Airwaves himself, he who at some point must be named Satan. You may regard him as the embodiment of destructive impulse, or as a single entity commanding other entities. But in any case, he is a convenient device to represent opposition, whether expressed by the world or the church, to the grace of God. He is the father of lies and source of the mystery of iniquity, an iniquity that defies measurement or comprehension. This spirit is deeply offended by the freedoms afforded children of God, and will quote law in chapter and verse to accuse us and condemn us, even before the throne of God, the cheeky bastard. Even now, he may be assailing you with vehement contradictions to what you have just read, for he thinks he knows scripture well enough for that. So let us now, author and reader together, for, if two of you agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you. Call upon Christ, triumphant over all the powers of hell, to bring the full force of the cross to bear into this argument, the cross that proved fatal to law. Then may the Spirit of God expel darkness of understanding, empowering us to cast down thoughts, pretensions and arguments that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. Amen. Amen. Glad we got that sorted, for there is a spiritual battle underway. As you know, 
Corrupt law enforcers have long been in the business of planting fake evidence on innocent people. Similarly, one of Satan's tried and trusted formulae for undermining children of God is to plant fake thoughts on us. Listen to these words of Gurnall under the heading, Satan accuses the saints of his own wicked thoughts. See also Satan in the court of heaven below. He lays his own evil imaginings like foundling children at the door. How clever he is at this deception. When thoughts or inclinations contrary to the will and ways of God creep in, many dear Christians mistake these miserable orphans for their own children and take upon themselves the full responsibility for these carnal passions. So deftly does the devil slip his own thoughts into the saint's bosom that by the time they begin to whimper, he is already out of sight, and the Christian, seeing no one but himself at home, supposes these misbegotten notions are his own. Brilliant metaphor. In Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan describes a similar stratagem used against the protagonist, Christian. One of the wicked ones got behind him and stepped up softly and whisperingly suggested terrible blasphemies to him, which he actually thought had come from his own mind. This was a greater trial to Christian than anything he had met with so far, even to think that he should now blaspheme him that he loved so much before. These illustrations alert us powerfully to Satan's schemes, his use of what Christian psychologist David Saul calls impulse thoughts, meaningless thoughts that we give meaning to. If Satan can get you to adopt his awful orphans, he is quick to follow up with law telling you not to have them, and by the mechanism that law makes sin increase, seeks to magnify the condemnation. The antidote to this is to remind yourself that these were not your thoughts in the first place, came not from you, nor find any root in you. Just harmless mists, vapours, memes and themes of a different frequency. A lower frequency too. Remember the unbendable arm exercise? Condemning thoughts, along with their kindred ilk of doubt and criticism, are would-be armbenders, but we can instantly turn our focus back to our higher realm of love, and love never fails, that they cannot understand, let alone touch. At such times, you may redirect the focus of your mind's eye to some object or symbol of your love. Passing Prophecy just as we may evaluate thought according to its accord or otherwise with the spirit of peace, the same may be said of prophecy. The key scripture here is 1 Corinthians 14.3. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. Remember too that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Meanwhile, we are beneficiaries of God's promise to Noah not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. God's wrath is set aside. We are not just saved from it, but saved abundantly. And as day and night come at their appointed times, 
Even so, is this covenant unbreakable? By these benchmarks may we discern the voice of our Shepherd. His prophetic purpose is to strengthen, encourage, and comfort us, not to bully, intimidate, threaten, or discourage us. He woos us, not whips us, to a spacious place. Any purported prophecy or sign or interpretation of one, any reading of a current event or random occurrence, any superstition, anything at all that fosters fear, worry, discouragement, or condemnation is not from God. Sometimes, prophecies or dreams that at first glance appear discouraging can be reinterpreted. For example, in Virgil's epic poem, The Aeneid, Harpies tell Aeneas and his followers, the remnant who escaped while Troy was ablaze and went on to found Rome, that they would eat their tables. The miserable interpretation they intended the Trojans to infer was that they would suffer starvation. But when the Trojans come ashore in their new land and set their food on flat cakes of meal and eat those cakes as well, Aeneas's son Ascanius jokes, we're eating our tables too. It is then Aeneas realises his son's words, proclaimed the beginning of the end of their trials. We may henceforth define any thought that induces fear as false prophecy. Fear is a parasitic thing, masquerading as a protective ally in order to feed on the energy and focus of its host. But when we see it as an alien entity with which we have no kinship, without nourishment it withers and dies. Near the end, in its desperate death throes, it will protest loudest, but merely signals thereby its imminent end. In order to discourage bold initiative, fear would have us believe our futures will repeat the worst of our past or penalise us for them. Such inventions we send to their appointed place, as Oscar Wilde writes. Do not be afraid of the past. If people tell you it's irrevocable, do not believe them. The past, present and future are but one moment in the sight of God. Time and space are merely accidental conditions of thought. The imagination can transcend them. Guilt, too, being a disposition grounded in fear of punishment, is false prophecy. You are marked to receive mercy, not punishment. Weeding out worry. Quotes. When you trust in yourself, you're trusting in the same wisdom that created you. Wayne Dyer. Be empty of worrying. Think who created thought. Rumi. Worry is a kind of false prophecy too, projecting a harmful expectation into the future, in the parlance of psychologists, a fear fantasy. It is contrary to our trust in a gracious, compassionate God who is slow to anger and abounding in love, whose plans are to prosper us and not to harm us. Moreover, his power to realise this benevolent intention is unchecked, for he does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. 
As neuroscientists Jeffrey Schwartz and Sharon Begley point out, when a person's worry circuitry in the brain gets overstimulated, there comes an excessive intrusive feeling that something is wrong, even when nothing is. At the same time, a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate, connected to brain centers that control the gut and the heart, is also overstimulated, amplifying the gut-level feeling of anxiety and dread. A persistent error detection signal is activated that is at odds with the person's intrinsic sense of self, as if a hijacker were taking over your brain's controls, or an imposter filling the rooms of your mind. Another condemning strand of false prophecy is to convert statements people make about themselves, or about life in general, into law that prophetically applies to the hearer, making law out of law, a kind of curse, a nocebo effect, if you will, opposite to the placebo effect, inferring a harmful outcome from an effectively inert input. For years, I ascribed to others that kind of prophetic power over me. I became afraid of what they might say, isolated myself in case I should hear something that would become lodged in my mind. Sometimes I would agonize for days, weeks, months, even years, about how to rebuke them, because I believed that only a rebuke would reverse the curse they had pronounced. It was all horribly tormenting, of course, and I see more clearly now, much assisted by the secret spring parable cited before, see, immutability, above, the bondage in those assumptions. We can be sure the mind of Christ is unassailably yours and mine, that it can never be tarnished, and that all curses were slain with him on the cross. He rose again, they did not. Superstitions are also false prophecy, for they chain humanity to expectations of failure or even disaster based on inconsequential circumstances. As Thomas Merton observes, God's will is not so cheap a mystery that it can be unlocked by any key like these. Superstitions are also a form of law. A person is a judge guilty of breaking the whole law by merest accident by putting a foot wrong, based on burdensome ideas of cause and effect concocted from prior coincidences. The insidious fruit of such a mindset is to curtail freedom, steal joy, and foster dread. Nor can Satan read your thoughts. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? You've been listening to my audiobook recording of the Gourmet Gospel. The ebook is free at most retailers, but only until the end of April 2019. You can find the links to get your copy by going to my website, poetprofit.com, where profit spelt P R O P H E T. Before I go, here's the latest from my Verses Verses Empire series. Get it? It's a homonym. Raw, 
on the UN Security Council resolution to end rape as a weapon of war. Let us have war, but without sexual violence. Let us have war, but not torture our prisoners. Let us have war, but not target civilians. Let us have war, not indiscriminate slaughter. Let us have war, but not bomb homes or schools. Let us have war that honours codes of conduct. Let us have war and not use mass destruction. Let us have war without these facts of war. Let us have war that is no war at all. Let us have peace that is no war at all. Until next week, this has been Abdiel Leroy.